0: Welcome to this week's episode of the Bet on Yourself podcast, where we speak to some of the world's most inspirational people who have all, at some point in their careers, taken a huge bet on themselves, transforming them personally and professionally. Today, I am joined by Catherine Finney, the best selling author, innovator, entrepreneur, and all around superstar. Born and raised in America's Midwest, Catherine has built her career on the examples of kindness and endeavor set by her father and those that came before him, which has seen her overcome anything that has been put in her way. After traveling around the globe to study and research women's health, Catherine then turned to fashion blogging and took the world by storm. The budget fashionista became an international phenom, seeing her featured in the New York Times and Mary Claire and even crossing paths at one point with Jane Fonda. Catherine's latest book, Build the Damn Thing, is hitting shelves this week and I am so excited to share her story with you. And as of this recording, her book is currently the number one new release on Amazon. I personally loved it. So if you enjoy this as much as I think you will, then please be sure to let us know in all the usual places, such as a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you happen to be listening right now. Catherine Finney, thank you so much for being on the Bet On Yourself podcast today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. I'm very excited, too. So I have been fangirling and stalking you cyberly for a while, and I did notice that I hear people refer to you by several different names, not necessarily just Catherine, but Kat and other things in between. How do you prefer to be addressed, <laughs> I guess is my first question. You know, it's so weird. Like, so when I was in trouble growing up, my mother would call me
1: Kathy Ann because <laughs> Ann is my middle name. So, like, not Kathy not Ann because then that would, like, trigger, right? Okay. <laughs> um most people call me Catherine, but it's really interesting through the years. Like each sort of friend has like a different way of like calling me. No one calls me Kate, but it'll be Kat, Kay, Kathy, Catherine. So I usually answer mostly the Catherine, but anything that's not, Kathy not Cathy-Ann.
0: We've got that safe space <laughs> yeah. created for you. That will not come up today. Um, well, I am so excited to dive into many aspects of your incredible life, career, and of course, the book that you're just launching of Build the Damn Thing. I'm so excited to talk and talk about that and dive into it. But first, I always love to start our conversations at the very beginning. I am curious what a young Catherine was like. And i um, I have heard some very fun stories about what you were like as a sibling and as a young girl, but please set the stage for our listeners who might not be familiar yet. You know,
1: I was this big thinker, dreamer, quirky little black girl in Midwestern United States. Um, And so I was born in Milwaukee, grew up mostly in Minneapolis, and I was very different Um, very, very different from the early age. Like just the way I even thought about things was very different. (laughs) Um, But, you know, for me, I was really lucky because I had parents who never told me I couldn't do anything. So I grew up as this quirky black girl in Minneapolis, feeling like I could do whatever I wanted to do um, and knowing that I could do whatever I wanted to do with my life. Um, And so that was really powerful for me because I never had limitations put on me. Um, and as a result, I didn't put limitations on myself. And so I was able to do just crazy stuff. I was like one of those girls in high school that everyone, like, I don't want to say everyone hated, but it was like, like the overachiever. So I was like my class president. I got like every award. I played sports. I was in drama. It was like, you had a presence. Like all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I had a presence. And even years later, it's really interesting to see how that presence has still stayed. Like I went back um, to my high school, the 25th anniversary of my graduation. I gave my graduation speech when I was a a kid and then going back as an adult and then giving the speech, it was like 4,000 people to this, you know, to kids who were me 25 years ago. I mean, it was a full circle moment for me, but I was always this like really outgoing um, kid I was friends with everyone, which is a skill that I think growing up in Minnesota really helped me with. I can talk to anyone. I don't care who you are. I can talk to you and find a way for us to connect, Um, even if it seems like there's nothing we have in common. Like I will find something in common. Um, And that really came from growing up in Minnesota and being this sort of outsider and having to um, make connections with people who are different than me. I was saying to a friend, I said, if I didn't, I would have been really lonely. I would have had no dates. Like, <laughs> so I had to like learn how to like make friends and connect with people who were different. And that was a really powerful lesson from growing up That's in incredible. Minnesota.
0: Incredible. I'm always um, fascinated by the different elements of nature and nurture that come out. It seems like your nature is this very vivacious presence, this big presence that you have. But it's also something you've shared in podcasts and other things that you've published about the f- foundation that your family life really gave you, the example of your parents. And I just love that they empowered you fully from a very young age to embrace what made you special and different and see that as a superpower instead of a disadvantage. Um, I- I really enjoyed on your podcast where your brother was sharing what it was like to be a sibling to you. (laughs) And he was, he was sharing how you've been entrepreneurial from the very beginning. In fact, you had the idea to uh, loan him your allowance and then uh, charge interest on the payback, which I loved. And then also setting up a, a babysitting network and then taking your cut for, for affiliate, I just, I mean, we're talking like five and six years old. Yes. You. So I think this is something that's just in your bones, which I find very inspiring. But not only that, as you said, you can talk to anyone and you can inspire that in others who maybe are their natures or their nurtures have been very different. They're coming from different environments. And that's why I'm so excited to dig into the elements of your book because you've given us such an actionable playbook where anybody uh, um, can really see themselves as an entrepreneur and self identify that way. But I was really touched by a, a story that you shared about your family and about how your dad's journey of really his nonlinear path into his career progression, um, influenced you. Um, so I, I would love if you wouldn't mind sharing that story of, of what that was like for your family in those years You know, I think
1: there's nothing about my dad that would have said he would have died a millionaire.: There's nothing in his life story particularly the beginning that would said that that would have been a possibility for him yet it was a reality and so my father was a brewery worker um most of my family is from milwaukee wisconsin and i'm several generations particularly on my dad's side milwaukee wisconsin so people are often like well where did you your parents come from It's like milwaukee they're like where your grandparents milwaukee your great-grandparents milwaukee um because everyone's trying to figure out how how many you know uh, generations removed I am from the South. I'm like, I'm deeply Midwestern. Um, and and so he grew up, he, he grew up with a single mom who was a teenager, was raised mostly by his grandparents who were incredibly influential in his life, especially his grandfather, who was this amazing man. I never met him, but I knew my great-grandmother very, very well. And we called her Big Mama, even though she was like 4'11". <laughs> and like everyone else was like two feet taller than her, <laughs> but... But, um, but I knew her very, very well. But his grandfather had such a, an influence on him. And he found himself as a teen in trouble. He was going through a lot. And to be a young Black man in 1960s Midwest, there weren't exactly, you know, help for him uh, at all, really. Um, and so he had an option of either going to the Army at 16. I mean, this was right at the beginning of the Vietnam War or going to jail. And he went to the Army and did four tours of duty um, and came back and was working at the brewery, which is what everyone does in Milwaukee, at least at that time period. It was great jobs. You can make great money working at the brewery at that time. Um, And met my mother, who came from a very different background. She came from a middle class, two-parent background. Her mother had went to college. Um, You know, her father was an accountant the air force base i mean she was a debutante i mean come on <laughs> it was like the complete opposite um complete opposite i often ask my dad I was like how did you get her because you were like um but they fell in love and i think my mother was such an influence to in him of like what the possibilities were, could be um and my dad was always very entrepreneurial always industrious always that sort of person and worked at the brewery and then the brewery shut down and what happened in milwaukee was no different than what happened in many other parts of sort of this industrial Midwest, like Gary, Indiana, you know, parts of Chicago, Detroit, where you had these communities that were built around manufacturing and then the manufacturing left and, and nothing came in to replace it. And so it devastated Milwaukee. But my father had this vision of himself that was bigger than really, I don't know how he got it because it was bigger than any vision you know, a middle-aged black man with two kids who didn't graduate from high school really was allowed to have, but he had it. And so he went back to school. He graduated valedictorian. I don't know how you do that with two kids and a wife, but he did it. Um, And found himself at a workforce training center called OIC. This guy from IBM was like, I'm just going to teach displaced factory workers C++, which is the foundational computing language. Um, I would love to see if I could ever find him or find his um, descendants. Because I'm like, what made him say, I'm going to go teach C++ to factory workers? Like, that that sort of connection. And I also think his family would love to know how that little moment, his the six Saturdays that he gave up teaching displaced factory workers led to me being able to talk to you about this book I wrote. The ripple um, effect is
0: huge. That's
1: so inspiring. The ripple effect. Yeah. I think we often don't realize how the small things, things that we think are really, really small, how that influences others and how it changes other people's lives. Um, And so he fell in love. Um, We often say, you know, C++ was the other woman in my parents' (laughs) marriage. Um, He had this aptitude for information and retaining information. And I see that in myself. I know so much useless information mostly, (laughs) but... He could just retain information and found himself with an internship at digital equipment um, which was one of the early computing companies for those who know about early computing and worked his way up and was recruited away from DEC. he won every award you could possibly get at digital equipment um, was recruited away uh, joined microsoft in 1992 so this is i often say this is when microsoft was like Google, like Microsoft was like the hot, hot place. Um, And it totally changed the fortune of my entire family, not just financially, but also just, you know, socially, our community benefited greatly. My dad was always trying to figure out how he could use his position to give resources or pathways to others. You know, it's interesting. My my ex-husband was in a car. We were in Atlanta, um, an Uber. And he was talking to the Uber driver and the Uber driver was talking about, he asked, you know, he said that he'd lived in Minneapolis and my ex-husband said, well, you know, yeah, my in-laws are from Minneapolis. And he was like, oh, and anytime you talk to another black person from Minneapolis, he always asks more details because there's not that many. Um, And come to find out that my dad was a mentor to this Uber driver who was, was, who had left uh, Microsoft, but had like mentored him. I mean, this is Atlanta 20 years later and like having this like conversation. That's the type of person he was. Um, And I learned when he passed away, there was over a thousand people at his funeral. It was crazy. It was held at the local high school auditorium. That's like how many people were there. And I had friends who flew in and I learned that my dad had sent computers to all my friends. Like when they went to college, I had no idea. I had no idea that he had you know, paid for college tuition for several of my brother's friends. Like all these things that we were learning of things that he just did or how he was an encouraging word or how he helped someone get a job. And it was just so overwhelming. It was such a lesson on living. It was such a lesson on living that you could get close to a thousand people to come out at the end of January in Minnesota. <laughs> If anyone who's ever been in Minnesota in January, February, that is not, that is true love (laughs) because, (laughs) because it is, I don't go, I don't even want to visit my family then, but, but that's how much of an influence he was. That's how much he mattered to people. And being a 25 year old, seeing that, um, it, it changed my life. It, it, it was a lesson on living. I had a front row seat to how you live um and it, it profoundly changed the way i think about the world and it profoundly changed
0: how i move in the world this is why i like to start with an origin story that is so inspiring there's so many nuggets of wisdom in there we could spend the rest of the conversation just unpacking all of that that your dad has uh modeled for you but uh, obviously the f- apple has not fallen far from the tree i think you're a beautiful continuation of that le- legacy and honestly that's what i was thinking the whole time you were sharing that story i was like that is a living legacy. So many of us, we don't know this. We have a single precious life, and we none of us know how much of that we get on this planet. And to watch someone actively live a living legacy and being so purposeful and um, so incredible ripple effects throughout the world that, that continue today, I just, oh, I love, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I'm really I, now so much of your story and your impact in the world. Um, somehow makes sense, because when I was reading your book, I was just like, this, where did this woman come from? Just the way you you chat, I just felt like this was the most powerful, like best friend I could have. who's was giving me the real talk, business advice, and um the the power with which you present your message and so unapologetically of of how you're showing up in the world. Now I see where you get it from. I love it. <laughs> um so you. You have been very successful in many elements of your life. You've been a natural leader even when you were um, in school. You went to you have a BA in women's studies from Rutgers and a Masters of Public Health from Yale. I really enjoyed the stories that you shared about your educational experiences and how your the way you showed up in those environments changed based on where you were at. In Minnesota, you described feeling the need to fit in, although not fitting in, and then how that shifted through your your um, education process when that was no longer what was desirable, it was what made you unique and cool. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your educational experiences and how that maybe shaped you, especially in your approach when you became an unintentional entrepreneur um, in that very first time?
1: So I've always been this like lifetime overachiever, um, and for a long time was really... Um, I think this happens to women and particularly when you grow up in environments where you're different, you you want to like shrink yourself a little bit so that people don't notice you. And you, and you hope that by shrinking yourself, people will kind of leave you alone and, and no one will, will notice you and they won't mess with you. And I remember speaking of my father, it was my senior year in, in high school, I was dressing horribly. This was grunge. Um, so it was grunge and I was like dressing horribly on the grunge. End. So if you could imagine <laughs> that, like. And we're in the car and he says to me, you know, you are a big girl. You are 5'10", Catherine. You have a presence. When you come in the room, people look at you. You. It doesn't matter what you do, people are going to look at you. So give them something to look at. And it was just so powerful because I was, like, trying to shrink myself. And what I've learned is it I can't. Like, this is who I am, <laughs> like – Um, and it's so interesting when I meet people, the first thing they're kind of like, is you really are, you really are that, like you are your book, you are who you are on TV, you know, like you are really Catherine. I'm like, yes, this is like who I am. And so when I went to Rutgers, which was like, I mean, completely the different world. I mean, from Minnesota to like New Jersey at the height of like hip hop, puffy with shiny pants, you know, all of that, (laughs) um, It was so, where difference was like celebrated. I mean, I had friends who wore drag to class. This was in the 90s. This wasn't now. (laughs) They were like, we're full on drag to class and no one cared. No one said anything. Um, And so I went to school with all these amazing people. Everyone who's ever existed went to Rutgers with me. Like every person you could think of. And to go there and then to succeed as well, I was part of student government. I did play rugby, did all this stuff. I won my class award like at Rutgers. You know, To still succeed at that level um, was pretty powerful. And then going to Yale, um, I went to Yale. It was between Yale, Harvard, and Johns Hopkins. Um, and went to Yale because I had lived in Ghana, West Africa, for a while. Um, when I entered college, I entered technically as almost a junior because I had all these college credits from high school. And at 20, I wasn't prepared to, like, graduate and go back to Minnesota because, again, this was the height of puffy, shiny pants, hip-hop, clubbing in New York. Anyone who was in New York or who went to New York during that time period know exactly what I'm saying. It was, like, total party. This was before bottle service. And how you got into clubs was based upon how cool you were and if you got on guest list And had all these friends who ran guest lists. So I was, like, always clubbing. I never had a class on a Friday, um, <laughs> which is, like and I still graduated at the top of my <laughs> class. I don't know how I did that. But um but yeah, you know, it just I didn't want to go back to Minnesota. It was just like having that freedom of being in New York City from Minnesota it just wasn't um in the plans for me and having the freedom to be my full self. I had a fellowship and went to Ghana, West Africa. I was supposed to be studying um breastfeeding um in Western Africa. I I did, but I really just hung out <laughs> <laughs> like, like, um, and I hung out a lot but I learned so much more from the hanging out actually um, and but I got sick there I got malaria and was very very ill for a good month or two um, and luckily for me I was dating someone whose family kind of like took me in and were great and so um, I got better but that had a profound impact on me I got better because I had western medicine i had access to high quality care because i had u.s dollars like that and i was an american and that was really the only reason why i had great care and that really disturbed me because i was like why do i get better care just because i have u.s dollars like everyone should have great care um and so when i came back i knew that i was going to go into public health and so Decided on Yale, um, mostly because when I went to visit, they really wanted me. And I think sometimes in life, um, you go where you're wanted. It, it makes your life a little bit easier. And Yale really wanted me. Not that Harvard and John, Johns Hopkins didn't, but Yale really wanted me to the point that my mom and my grandmother came with me to visit Yale, not because they needed to like give their approval, but because they were visiting me that week. And it's like, let's drive up to New Haven. And so we drove up to New Haven and they treated my mom and grandma like gold. I mean, they like put us up in a hotel. I mean, it was this whole big thing. Um, And so I loved it. And I went and Yale was nothing like I thought it was going to be. I I think I thought it was going to be stuffy and stodgy and um, everyone wearing, you know, those corduroy (laughs) jackets with like elbow (laughs) elbow. And I ended up having the time of my life. I, you know, I met lifelong friends. Um, I got to do really important work. Uh, my focus was on HIV, AIDS, and women. And so lived in South Africa for six months um, in Durban, doing research on that. And it just opened my, my world. Um, the resources you have when you go to a place like Yale or any Ivy League school, Um, it's pretty game-changing. And for me, coming from this non-Ivy sort of big public institution to this Ivy institution, it was just like a really interesting combination of um, educational background. And so I had this like elite education. I went to Phillips Academy Andover for a little bit. And then, you know, I went to public school in Minneapolis. And then I went to Rutgers, which is this big public institution. Then I went to Yale for graduate school. And it was like, All of these, like, you know, elite in mass education sort of experiences all together. And it taught me how to move in pretty much any space. Um, And I think that was the benefit of having that sort of, like, sort of quilt of, of educational experiences. And so I knew that I could go into any room and be okay. I could go into a boardroom at Goldman Sachs and be very okay. And I can go into, you know, a nightclub in Harlem and be very, okay. <laughs> I can go to and In fact, it's so funny. Um, Darlene Giller-Jones, who's a dear friend of mine, but also an executive producer on the podcast. She's the reason why the podcast is so amazing. Um, she talks about a time where we went uh, to a radio station. And on one side of the radio station was the gospel channel. And the other side of the radio station was the hip hop channel. And so, and she talks about how I go in, I go to the gospel channel, I'm like, you know, praise the Lord, God is good, you know, like, quoting scripture, and then we walk over to the hip-hop, and I'm like, yo, yo, what's up, you know, (laughs) and she's like, and it was like 30 minutes between those two, and she's like, and both were
0: authentically Catherine, like, (laughs) I think this is something very special about you. I can see that. And it it makes sense of so much of your journey that later on when you had this massive success, how you could handle it. When you were uh, faced with the bro culture of tech, you could handle it and you could stand up for yourself. Uh, This this foundation of understanding how to be authentically you in wildly different environments has served you so well. Um, So... I am very. So much I want to ask you. I just feel like I have to do lightning round on everything. But um, so coming out of Yale, you had you share in the book. You had ninety thousand dollars in student debt, um, but you had a real love of shopping. So you, (laughs) your your husband encouraged you to maybe turn this passion of yours into a, a different expression where it didn't cost money, but you could just be sharing your passion with others. And then it became the budget fashionista, which is just. I mean the mythology around it is huge for me because I started in tech right around the time you launched your blog. I started at Amazon in 2002. And I remember how hard... I, I also started a blog that literally five people have read, <laughs> including my mom and my four sisters. That's it. Um, but I I remember how hard it was to do blog because we didn't have smartphones yet. It wasn't easy to upload content. Um, in fact, I highlighted this entire paragraph where you share... The entire process of getting your content up there, the the things for those who don't yet who can't remember, who are too young to remember what it was like in those early tech years, set the stage for us when you're starting this and how it how quickly it took off because really this grew so quickly into an absolute phenom. You became the first blogger who was invited to New York Fashion Week. You had a regular spot on the Today Show. I am curious one. What was it really like behind the scenes? And then, two, how did you handle that spotlight when you so quickly got attention so early in your career? You were still very young. Um, I don't think I would have handled it as gracefully as you did to suddenly be in the national TV spotlight. You know, I have this gene. You know, so everyone has
1: this gene that tells you not to do something, <laughs> right. right? I don't no. have that. One. Okay. Like, I don't have that. <laughs> and so I have this ability to, like, be scared and be frightened, but then put it in like a, a place to go back to later. So while I'm in the moment, I'm just, not, I'm just in the moment and just being Catherine. You know, when we started the blog, you know, it was 2002, 2003. There was no what you see is what you get sort of system. There was that WordPress wasn't even invented yet. It was just no way to, to do this. And actually, people didn't see content as actually a viable business model online when I started. There was no display ads even. Like there there was, I remember Google had just invented, um, was it AdWords, yes. right? Or They Ad, just acquired they it. They just mm-hmm. just acquired it. Like, so, and I was really excited because that meant that you could actually monetize like what you were doing. So all of this was new. Um, and I started it because I was, bored And as as a distraction, my father had passed away and I was shopping and spending money to basically assuage grief and started it to to stop spending money, (laughs) essentially. And it was, you know, it started off as this hobby of only a couple of people reading it. But um, what we did was we had learned about this thing called SEO, which this relatively new browser um, called Google was using. And so we embedded a lot of SEO into search engine optimization into the site. As a result, if you shut like budget fashion sample sale, all these terms, the budget fashion used to came up first. And a reporter from the New York, or the reporter from Associated Press, I remember her name, Natasha Gura, contacted me to write an article about people who traveled to go to sample sales, and. In that article, it was an Associated Press article that had a link back to the blog. And it was released on January 1st, 2004. And this went everywhere. Because at the time, uh, most of our publications, New York Times, Marie Claire, did not invest anything on content online. They actually just used whatever was on the wires. Like They, they had no online editors. They had no like, online staff. They just didn't think it was worth it. So as a result, this little article about people who travel to go you know, shopping, linking to my blog, went everywhere. And the traffic was crazy. And this was before we had cloud. So we spent, I mean, I don't even want to say how much we spent on servers. <laughs> I can only imagine. Um, this is before AWS, way, way before AWS. Way yeah. before AWS. This was before even Amazon really had like, really solidified its business. Absolutely. We were making it up as we went in those years. Yeah, Right. Like, it's like nobody, nobody knew, Uh as I like to say, nobody knew nothing. Mm -hmm. It was like, like, it was, so it was like, how do you, you know, have that happen and not have it expected? It was just like, oh my God, like, this is something real. Like, this is a real thing. And then fast forward about a year or two later, I wrote a book. From Random House is one of the first books by a female blogger um, and that led to the Today Show did a bunch of tv like Morning America stuff like that but Today Show was like a regular occurrence and if you google you can find some clips of me like there's a crazy clip about this Halloween segment I did where like you know Anne Curry was like pop locking and like <laughs>
0: I'm Googling this immediately.
1: (laughs) It was like crazy. It was like how to shop on it, like on a budget. It just went like very crazy. It was a lot of fun. And behind the scenes, you know, it was really interesting because um, Al Roker is like the nicest human being to ever walk the entire earth. He was just so nice to me. And he would often do my segments. And so would Ann Curry and um, Savannah Guthrie, who are all like just really, really amazing. And at the time I was doing it, like when I was really, really um, doing my correspondent work, they were remodeling the studio because Meredith Vieira was coming on. I don't know if anyone remember when Meredith Vieira came, who is also like the second nicest human being in the entire world. It's like her and Al are gonna like duke it out for that title. Um, and so we had to do our segments where everyone gets dressed and stuff using the Saturday Night Live dressing rooms. And that meant that we were in where they actually did the costumes and stuff for Saturday Night Live, and was in like the studio where they do Saturday Night Live. I mean, it was crazy. And so I met like all these people, like Jane Fonda, who we were being very loud at six in the morning, and because we were like you know getting and we always I always try to make it fun because I use real people models, and like you're getting up at five, I'm gonna make this a lot of fun for you. And she came in. To the room because she was in the dressing room next to ours and she's like it seems like you all are having a lot of fun and if you can imagine like the silence when like she walked in because they're like that's jane fonda <laughs> hello like you know and for me i was kind of used to the celebrities being around but you know the real life models that i were using who were real people they were like that's jane fonda and she took pictures with everybody um i met ed mcmahon a number of times which was and he was always very nice um, and so it was just a real experience. And, you know, at that time I did a lot of spokesperson work too for Marshalls and TJ Maxx and Tide and folks like that. It was very, very lucrative from a business standpoint.
0: And you really, very, very you really invented that, because that was not a thing. Like to be to you, um I heard that your book tour actually had been sponsored by Marshalls, right? That had yeah. never been done before. You, This concept of a content yeah. creator and influencer didn't yet exist, and you really created that business model. And also, by the way, your yeah. book was a very big deal back then. It still is. I think you're in your 13th printing of your first book. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah, I think people are still buying I it. I love it's it. It's like 16 <laughs> years old or something. I'm like, wow. I mean, that's pretty – I mean, that's amazing, <laughs> but it's okay. A, like, <laughs> it's a big deal, but I think it's, it, it is about this larger force. You had this vision – of doing things that no one else had ever done before. You are really approaching this in a proactive way. And I think all of these authentic connections that you are creating with these, you know, nicest humans on earth lives through that work. I think that's what um, is so attractive about it is it feels inclusive rather than elite and exclusive for these other people, for these famous, you know, Jane Fonda categories who seem so perfect and larger than life and not human. You... I think the magic of how to be a budget fashionista is that inclusivity, that you too can have this presence, this look, this confidence. And anyway, that's just my my guess on, on why it's really resonated. But you invented really you, the gold standard of content creation and influence and, and partnership and, and making it um, your presence online could be lucrative in a way that no one had, had done before. Did that just evolve naturally? Is this a master plan of yours to take over the world? Like how did the... Come to me. it wasn't.
1: I have very few master plans actually. <laughs> I do I know that sounds like probably not what people want to hear because everyone's like, you do this plan. I, I believe in go, I believe in flowing like water, meaning you know going where the opportunity is when it presents itself. Um, and then also having the energy that creates those opportunities and, and really coming forth coming to things with that sort of energy. I mean, one of the things that happened to us is there was in 2006, there was an early ad network called Glam that people may remember that didn't became old. And we were one of the first, I think we were the first people to sign on to Glam. Um, and Glam was the first to really understand how lucrative the lifestyle space, particularly the, the women's lifestyle space was going to be. Um, and so I was able to make quite a significant amount of money. Um, I mean, like, absurd amount of money. Like we were making $12 CPM for remnant ads, it, like, right? Um, at that time. And so I started to see the real business opportunity in it w- when that came in. It was a way to monetize. There was actually a business model now. It was advertising generated primarily, but there was a business model to content. And that was really, really exciting because prior to that, there was really no real way to make money off of that. Um, and then you had other organizations like BlogHer. So when I sold... Budget fashionista. Um, I went to work for a blogger as um, the editor and sh- editor at large, and, and helped them build out their lifestyle space. And that was really interesting. I mean, one selling a company um, was an interesting experience, particularly you know as an African American. When I told my family I sold my company, the first reaction was like, "Oh, baby, are you okay?" Because in our community selling your company is not what you do you only sell it if you can't keep it right it's, it's no idea of like you're selling it for profit you're selling it because it's valuable you're selling it because you want to move on to something else and i remember having a conversation with my grandmother and i'm like no i'm very good and then that, subsequently they got a lot of benefits from it so they they know that it was, it was great <laughs> but at that moment it was like you're selling your company what's wrong and for a lot of people in the content space It became this beacon on how to transition to something else, which is something I'm very, very proud of. Um, I always try to leave an example whenever I transition from anything of like how to do it in a way that's graceful as as well as empowering the others. And so it gave examples to those who were coming up behind me of like, how do I do something different? So I did this content and it's great. Now I want to move on to something else. And how do I do that? Like, how can I exit? Um, And it's particularly important for women and and people of color because we're not taught how to exit. We're taught that this is what you do and you do it for 30 years and then you get a gold watch and then you move on. Instead of like, maybe I only want to do this for five years and I created value and somebody else might want it and I can sell it for profit. Great. Let's do it. You know? And so being able to model that, being one of the first black women in particular to be able to sell her company in that sort of way. Um, has been really important to me in terms of my legacy and I've seen the impact it's had on others. I do a lot of consultation with younger uh, folks about like how to position your company for sale, how to think about it. Like, um, you know, what, what are they buying? Cause usually when a company buys is for one of four, what I call the four T's it's for traction. You have this great community, you have great growth. It's for, um, Taxable income, which is another way of the saying like money. You have great revenue. Um, it's for technology. You've built some technology that it would cost them more to, to do themselves. So they just buy it from you because it's easier. Or talent. They're buying it because you have this great team that you built. Or maybe they're buying it because they want you to come on. But one of those reasons are the reasons why they buy your company. And they bought the Budget Fashionista for taxable income and, and really traction. Because um, I wasn't going with it. I decided once I sold it, I was done. I did not want to be the budget fashionista anymore. Um, and so, and and that affected the price. I said to someone, like, if I would have stayed and did an earn out, it would have been a higher price. But I know me, and I know when I'm done, I'm done. I'm like, so, and like, I didn't want to be there. And it also would have drove me crazy having this company that I, you know, led for eight years and all of a sudden someone else is coming in and telling me what to do. And so sold it. I went to work for blogger and blogger saw that, you know, I would go to these conferences and there was just no women and definitely no women of color. And we would go and there would be like, you know, a line around the, around the hallway for the men's bathroom and no line in the women's bathroom. So it's like crazy. Like the patriarchal structure of tech at least allowed us to, P, I I guess. <laughs> At least there was one but like, as a woman That was like the one benefit <laughs> from being excluded is that we could go to conferences and go to the bathroom and there would be That's no true. line. But it's like, in seeing that, it's like, where are we? Because I know there's women like me out there. I know them, a lot of them are my friends. And started really Digital Divided, which started as a conference called Focus 100. Um, to gather basically all the black women who are doing startups like, and, and like who were in tech. Literally, that was like our idea. We're just going to invite everybody. We're going to find you. We're going to like shake a tree or two. And it's really crazy to see almost 10 years later, actually it would be 10 years later this year um, of the focus conference, where some of these women are. I mean, Issa Rae spoke at a conference when she was doing awkward black girl on YouTube um, Mandela Schumacher Hodge Dixon, who's now the head of All Rays, got like her one of her first pitch contests, was at like Focus. Um, Lovey who's like this big celebrity now, like all these people <laughs> were at Focus and they were either you know working or they attended or a part of this community. Um, which is crazy. It was crazy this to think of all these people who are now massive celebrities, Stacey Philpot, like, you know, all these folks who who were there and part of this community that we built. And that turned into Digital Divided, which is the social enterprise that I founded and led for, for eight years. Um, but yeah, it was just such an incredible time. And I think of just how everything has just flowed into each other.
0: I think it's such a beautiful example, just as you're describing this cast of characters that came up together, how... Bringing them together with it's really not by accident that you all became so successful. It's really empowering to find a tribe of people who are like you who understand you in a really unique way i do uh, I worked at Google for twelve years, and my closest bathroom was a floor down like that i You know, but I met my best friend there uh, when both of us were having a meltdown, actually, in the ladies' room at the same time. Uh, But this, this, um, I call them my foxhole friends. These people you've been through the trenches who understand. Mm -hmm. You don't have to give context. They're just like, oh, yes, I I understand you. You, you, It's a very powerful experience to come out the other side of that. And then you also, I mean, this all sounds very glamorous and like overnight success you had, but you've been through the trenches. Like after this, through the trenches, uh, you start your book. Um, by the way, I have to say the full title because I absolutely love the full title. It is Build the Damn Thing, How to Start a Successful Business if You're Not a Rich White Guy. I really, I love that because um, same yeah, as a woman in tech, starting around the same time you did um, at Amazon 2002 to 2005 and then Google 2006-2006 for the next 12 years, I often was the only woman in the room. I often was just surrounded by, as you also mentioned in the introduction of your book, all of them had gone to Stanford, Harvard, MIT, except for me. Like I, I not only was the only woman in the room, I did not go to the, an Ivy League school. I went to great schools, but not not those same schools. And I was surrounded by 20-year-old people who all had the same background and ideas of tech and wonderful people. I mean, I dearly I had wonderful experiences. But it's it, to find your tribe is so empowering. And that's um, really, I think, something that comes through in your book is you've really not only created this um, shared so authentically your journeys and the ups and downs of that, but you've, you've, transition that into a playbook that you can not only read as a very fun story, but also come back to and reference over and over again. If you're a, an entrepreneur or you're struggling through a particular thing, you just open up that chapter again. I, I know I'm going to be doing that many times. But I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing one of your hardship stories, um, because I found it so relatable as a woman in tech. Would you mind sharing your? I think it was 2009 story of when you were first. Yeah, it's real hard when you're your first in So I love how you frame it in the book. You've got the entitleds and the builders. And your book really here is empowering the builders to try and level the playing field in the way we can. But your first experience into the VC world was not positive and not great and uh, very much pitching to the bros of tech. Would you mind setting the stage for us of this, how you first came into this VC world?
1: You know, one of the things, and I talk about this in the book, there's nothing like the certainty of mediocre white men. <laughs> they are like the most certain people in the world. It's impressive. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's what I experienced really at this incubator program. It was an early incubator program in New York City. I had this idea that I was going to do like sort of a beauty company for like black women. Um, now this seems like a total no it's brainer. It's a no right? brainer. Like it's genius. Total no brainer. You saw it
0: before anyone else did. Yeah
1: before but 2009 no no one saw that they didn't they didn't see it especially from someone like me and so I entered into this incubator program where I was met for the very first time in my life with people having no expectations of me not low expectations no expectation and I had never experienced that before I grew up in Minnesota, so I was totally used to being, I like to say, the only little chocolate drop in the room. That was like not a problem for me at all. And I could make friends and connect with pretty much anyone. But I was so marginalized and so um, put in a box because of my race and my gender that it was as if I could not succeed. There was nothing I could do to change their mind about who I was. And so I got up to do a, a pitch of my idea Mind you, they used to call on people randomly. They never called on me. When I said that I wanted to pitch my idea, they were like shocked that I wanted to do that. Almost like, oh, you can talk. Mind you, I was a correspondent on the Today Show. I had did a a Today Show segment that morning before doing a pitch. So I knew how to talk. I'm from Minnesota too. I know how to talk. Um, And so I get up and do this pitch. And at first the feedback was like, amazing from the mentors the mentors like loved it they thought it was great wanted to learn more but the people in the audience who were my colleagues it's like 100 150 people almost all of them were white men proceeded to tell me how wrong I was in the most ridiculous ways you could possibly do so one person asked me did I know of any like beauty or fashion bloggers Mind you, I was like the dean of beauty. And best you and are branding. the queen of um, beauty. Blogging. I was like, dude, like, okay. Um, one one guy said with as much like certainty as he could that he didn't think I could relate to other Black women because I had an accountant.
0: That um, made my blood boil when I read that one. He was like, "You're not relatable because you're so successful and put together, and you have an accountant." Yes. so. And yes, and Black people are not successful. That's essentially what he was saying. Like,
1: And and it was, and I couldn't re- react. I think any of us who've ever been in those situations, and I talk about in the book, like how do you turn it? Because um, we will, you will find yourself in a situation where someone is saying the most absurd thing to you. And they usually are mediocre. I have found that successful, intelligent white dudes don't do this. It's usually the mediocre white dudes who do this because of... Your 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 intelligence triggers something in them, um, and so I like literally was like I don't. It, it was just it's like I couldn't say what I wanted to say. I wanted to yell at him and cuss him out, but I also knew if I did that, it would have an impact not only on me but on any other black woman who came into that space. And that's the sort of unfair burden we carry of like. I, I'm representing a lot more than just Catherine Finney. And so I have to be conscious of that. So while I want to react and say all sorts of stuff, I can't. And so in the book, I talk about how, you know, you turn it around, like particularly when you're a, a startup and you're going in to meet with a VC And the first thing they want to do is they're really fascinated about you and how, how did you get to whatever institution you went to, or how did you get into the room? That's really, they're fascinated by how you got into the room that you end up wasting forty five minutes of that hour because you only get an hour. You don't get an hour and five minutes. You get an hour for that meeting, talking about why you're why you are in the room, and only fifteen minutes on your business. And then what you hear on the back end, I hear it from fellow VCs. Well, they only talked about themselves. They didn't talk about the business, and so, and I'm like, well, you didn't did you ask them questions about the business or did you ask them a bunch of questions about why they were in the room? Cause you were so fascinated that this woman is doing a biotech company and could actually get in the room and you've never met a woman biochemist. So you want to like talk to her about how she got to be a woman biochemist versus spending the time talking to her about her. And I
0: loved in the book, how you say you reframe the power dynamic and you give women this permission to turn that around and say, I would love to have another meeting about that where we can dive into that. And you, that's such a power move. When I read that, I was like, ooh, underline, triple underline. Because then you're one, you are in control of this conversation where it's going. And two, you're getting a second meeting. I I thought that was genius. Always the second meeting. You
1: always want the next meeting. And so you just say, you know, gee, Connor, that's a great question. Why don't we set up a meeting next week to go over it? And I can explain a little bit more. Like, and just kind of deflect and move to the next meeting keep moving everything to the next meeting next meeting next meeting next meeting um but yeah i mean that had a profound impact on me and fast forward uh 20 years later this particular vc who ran the the organization um he was seeking funding from a very well-known lp in my own fund and they asked me about him and i said you know I got to tell you the truth. It was the worst experience. Let me tell you what happened. And it's not just me, but it was others too who had this experience. And so I think if you would have asked him in two thousand and nine, would this you know black chick be in a position of power to help him either get a significant amount of investment or not? He would have laughed in your face. But fast forward, you know, you know, eleven years later, and here she is in this position. And I decided that I wasn't going to be silent because I didn't have to be anymore. And I was like, I'm going to tell the truth. And this is what happened to me. Um, And so, yeah, but, you know, and throughout the book, there's stories, personal stories, but it's always connected to like a lesson or something that I learned, um, particularly about how when you are, you know, a builder, there's different factors you have to think about that's very different than others. Um, I'm a mom. It is very hard for me to just jump on a plane and go someplace like that day. I have to plan and strategize with a number of different people, a number of different entities, and a six-year-old to make that happen. It is a lot of moving (laughs) pieces with that. No small task. And I think, yeah, I think in every person who is a caregiver, whether you're a mom or dad, understands the challenges that you have with that and how you have to rethink things. And for me, having family to be able to lean on was massive in building my companies. And when you're an entrepreneur, you don't have a lot of money. And so you need to draw on whatever resources you have. And yeah, your family might not be able to write you a 50K check, but um, they could do what my mother did, which was move to the city I lived in to help me raise my son Um, at a time where myself and my ex-husband was traveling so much that we needed somebody there who wouldn't get mad if our flight was delayed, who wouldn't get, you know, and she came and it was such a lifesaver for us. Um, and I don't even know how much money that would have cost. I mean, well over a hundred thousand dollars because she was with us for four years. So, you know, it would have been so much money and that value. And I think as entrepreneurs and who are builders, understanding the other ways that our families can help, our communities can help and support us is really super important.
0: I love the theme that you're describing right now where the definition of an entrepreneur doesn't have to be this twenty-year-old white guy in his garage who's taking a hundred million dollars of VC, you know, seed money, for example. And I, one part that really stood out to me was what you call the five bald-faced lies of entrepreneurship. And I, I particularly this particularly resonated with me because a big mission of mine is to help people self-identify as an entrepreneur, or entrepreneur when nobody who looks like you or comes from where you come from has done this crazy thing that you feel in your heart is calling you. Um, can you walk us through some of the the five lies? And um, how you've seen this in action, because now you, you've done it yourself, you've walked it, you've lived it, but now you're sponsoring all these upcoming women and underrepresented entrepreneurs to live their journey as well. So, um, yeah, I really love this section about the lies of entrepreneurship that we're being told.
1: Yeah, I mean, like one of the big ones was that you had to know how to code. You don't. <laughs> you, you you really don't. It's helpful to, particularly if you're building something that is really a tech heavy platform like software, it's helpful for you to understand a bit of programming for no other reason than for you to be able to talk to your CTO and to be able to have meaningful conversations with them. Um, And they will appreciate that you understand, you have a little bit of a foundational um, language there to help understand what it is that they're doing. So that's more of, I look at it as more like learning a little bit of Spanish before you go to Spain, right? People speak English there, but it will really help you communicate. If you learn just a little bit of Spanish, it will be, go a long way. And similar with that. Um, another one was that you have to go to Ivy League school. Um, you don't. And in fact, most of the successful people didn't. I mean, Steve Jobs did not go to an Ivy League school. He went to community college in a small college in like Oregon. People don't realize that. Matt Mullenweg, the founder of WordPress, did not go to an Ivy League school. Jack Dorsey didn't go to an Ivy League school right like like that's a total fallacy and particularly when you're a person of color many of the very successful people of color did not go to ivy league schools um and some didn't even really go to school puffy you know dropped out of puffy puff daddy i know he changes his name a lot um sean puffy combs dropped out of howard oprah went to tennessee state i mean the so these amazingly successful people did not go to these schools that had these sort of networks. And I think that's really important to know as you build in this space because there's a tendency to say, if you didn't go to Harvard, MIT, or Stanford, you know,
0: you don't fit the pattern, don't know if you could do it, and that's not the case. I I love how you bring it down to the heart of you yourself, your unique vision, this calling, this thing that's larger than yourself, like is worthy of investment in that. And um, gosh, I'm where's the time gone? I want to do a lightning round of two things that I think are really important that builds on that beautiful point that you're just making. One is how much in the book you emphasize the importance of balance. 1st on focusing on your core values and knowing who you are as an entrepreneur first, like having those foundational mission, vision, and values really clear in your head and who you are. And then the second is really about creating that balance. Um, In fact, a a quote that I really love from your book is, as a builder, you are the head of your company. If you're, if you're not good, then the company will not be good either. Taking time to mentally prepare yourself for the daunting task of building a company will give you a much bigger return on your investment than just jumping in. Can you um, share a little bit about why you think that mission, vision, and value, and that clarity of who you are and taking care of who you are is a really important part of the success as an entrepreneur? You know, being an entrepreneur, you're going to be challenged. You,
1: it's just a fact. You, who you are, what you do, you're going to be challenged at every stage. And the way to help manage through the stress of that is to have a real sense of your core values and a real sense of who you are. Um, and, and actually writing it down, I talk about in the book, Like I write, wrote down my core values. Um, in our company, before we even raised a drop of dollar for our funds, we focused on core values. And the biggest one being be human. And we live that because if I can see the humanity in myself, I can see it in you too. And it, it makes the business interaction all the more different. It makes when we have to have tough conversations, very different because I can recognize your humanity because I see it in myself. Um, and a part of finding the balance is also goes back to being human. We are human beings. We are not machines. We break. And when we break, sometimes it's hard to put us back together. And so taking the time to do what you need to do to be you and to be your full self is incredibly important. I swim. I know when I have not swim in a while because I get a little kooky crazy. Um, I take vacations. I'm going on a three-week vacation in July. I am going on that vacation. I need that vacation. I have been thinking about that vacation. Um, you know, doing those sort of things where you like set out whatever it is that helps you to be you and keep you centered. It could be, you know, I have a friend who likes to make, like she was a barista in her previous life. She loves to make coffee for herself each morning. It's a ritual. And like whatever you have to do to keep you, whatever is meditative for you, Do that by all means and do not let go of that no matter how much time constraints you have because that is going to be how you're going to get through this. Entrepreneurship is a marathon. It is not a race. And we are all in this because we want to live a creative life in which we can control. But we can't do that if we're not here. We can't do that if we are not centered. And so taking that time to really figure out who you are and your core values and what you stand for and what you care about and
0: making sure that you live that within
1: your business is incredibly important.
0: Beautifully said. I literally got goosebumps. I don't know if you can see it, but literally got goosebumps in that description. Catherine, thank you so much for sharing your journey, for being this incredible mentor and sponsor and Paying forward this beautiful ripple effect to so many entrepreneurs, I can only imagine the 10x effect of the people that will benefit from not only your life and your example, but this beautiful book, this playbook that you've given us to replicate that in our own lives and our own journeys. I had the great privilege of first uh, experiencing you at South by Southwest. I know you're a very active keynote speaker. Oh, I, I, the yeah. second I saw you on stage, I was like, we have to talk. Um, I knew we were of the oh, same tribe. Awesome. But where can people follow along? What stages can we see you on? How can we follow your journey? Where can they find the book? What are the yeah. ways we can connect and keep this conversation going?
1: Sure. So the book is sold wherever books are sold on Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble. Um, you can find me at Catherine Finney on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram at hi, Catherine. Um, Instagram is fun. I'm doing like some fun videos. So it's kind of I follow you. It's Um, very fun.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Like, and then you all can see my fashion too. I'm like a big fashion person as well. Um, And so, yeah. And then also, you know, there, we have YouTube, we have Vimeo, but I think, you know, one of the things I'm most excited about, particularly for people who get the book, is for you to like tag me so I can see how you are using some of the principles in it. I love to see that um, and share with me how the book is working for you and how it's impacted you. Um, Cause I'd like to be able to reshare some of that with others as well. And so I, um, And I'm just so excited about this book and I'm so proud of it. I'm so very, very proud of it. And it's
0: cool too. Very cool. I have to say, having read an early copy of it, I feel it is very, very cool. I can't wait to, I'll follow all of the socials and see. It's so exciting to see your book, Baby, out in the wild and like living its own life. It's very exciting. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And I look forward to watching this journey as it continues. Thank you.